You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Hello, one and all. Welcome to Be Real. I'm Chance. I tell you that I'm flying solo today, but I have two guests coming your way to talk about a topic near and extremely dear. Nick F. and Cage. At times, we've called Nicolas Cage the mascot of Be Real, uh, the spirit animal of Be Real, two titles that he probably deserves far better than. Um, we have often revered what he is able to do in movies, as we did on a full episode dedicated to movies where he played dads about five years ago. What were the movies on that one? It was Mom and Dad, Matchstick Men, and almost certainly a third. <laughs> Family Man. Was it Family Man? It must have been. Um, and, you know, I, I think back to recently when we did Face Off on the John Woo episode, and we both ended up just appreciating so deeply what he was able to do in that movie. And then you have the inverse. Like, two weeks ago, we watched Peggy Sue Got Married, and we were like, this is incredibly entertaining and discussable, but I have, I, I think he, I think he is borderline ruining this film. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's the Nick Cage experience. Um, it is, it is manic. And it is discussable, and as a podcast, it is ultimately something that we that we love very much. Um, so today's episode is an ode to the fact that Nicolas Cage never never sits still and never stops changing. I mean, he's been a heartthrob in movies like Moonstruck and Valley Girl, an Oscar winner, of course, for Leaving Las Vegas, a beefy action star for Michael Bay and John Woo. He's been a borderline fascinating menace in cult movies like The Vampire's Kiss, also some, a movie we talked about on the show. He's been The Family Man, shout out to Noah. Uh, he's been lost in the wilderness of VOD schlock for what seems like an eternity sometimes. But right now, in April 2022, he is very much back. Since we last talked about uh, contemporary Nick Cage movies, he's basically redefined the acting he's done in his 50s with movies like Mandy and Pig. Uh, and a new movie is trying to go ahead and put a cherry on top of that reignited cult of Cage. The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. It's a mouthful title. I'm just going to call it Massive Talent henceforth. Is that okay with you? That movie sees Cage playing a version of himself. So today I have two guests to, to dig into and celebrate all this. The first is Ray Gill Jr., a Portland writer, radio host, and pal. We're going to talk about Massive Talent, which celebrates the chaos and idolatry of this one-of-a-kind film career. We're going to hear that conversation momentarily. And then Be Real favorite uh, Andy Crump returns to the show to talk about Cage's last five years outside of this new movie. I've come across few critics, I have to say, who understand cage better and are so willing to go with where he takes us in all his movies just to see where we wind up andy andy is a cage scholar i would say i love both these conversations and i'm gonna just let them roll out here okay uh so i don't think you'll hear from me in the middle or the end except for the fact that you will because i'm talking to both ray and andy no and i will be back on the main feed in may with a new episode genre tbd over on the patreon which you can find at patreon.com slash be real. We have April watch picks still coming this week. And if you haven't checked out our watch along commentaries, you know, like the ones that you, you throw on a streaming movie and then you put in one earphone and you can listen to Noah and I watch it with you. Uh, we got new ones for walk hard and Anaconda and interview with the vampire. I forgot about that. So yeah, we'd love you to subscribe over there. If you're not, if you want more, be real. I believe that is it. So I'll just cool it, as Nick would say, with all the mumbo jumbo. What did he say? He says he loves you, but he went in a different direction. I'm done. I'm quitting acting. Ah, man, I'm driving through the hills. I'm sorry. One more time. We got another offer. It's a million bucks. It's to attend a wealthy gentleman's birthday party. The guy that owns this house, what's his name? Javi. Javi. Uh, Mr. Cage. Excuse me. Is Javi going to want me to uh, 
You know. I'm not sure I understand. Look, it's Javi. I am Javi. Nick Cage. God, this place is stunning. What is your favorite movie? That's one of those questions that's impossible to answer. You can't just limit it to one. Imagine me and you. I do. Is it too much? Is this supposed to be me? It's grotesque. I'll give you 20,000 for it. Joining me, a special guest. He's a contributing writer to Portland Mercury and Willamette Week. He is a DJ for the Portland Radio Project. He hosts uh, Rude Boy Radio, is the name of his show, Saturdays at noon. And uh, the captain of the very um, persevering Monday Mix music column for Oregon Public Broadcasting, Ray Gill Jr. Welcome to Be Real. Hey, how are we doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for doing this. Oh, this is awesome. Yeah, no problems. So... You and I met some years ago when we were both DJs for the music division at uh, Oregon Public Broadcasting, and we talked we talked often about movies on on Mondays when we were supposed to be putting together our our music playlists, um, which was a joy for me. Um, but I don't I was found myself wonder trying to remember if we ever had a Nick Cage conversation. Do you recall anything, or and or do you have like strong Nick Cage feelings? I can't recall if he ever came across our, you know, our conversations just casually, but he was right. not focused on anything. I'm not a big Nick Cage fan. I, I, I like Nick Cage. I, of course, he's been uh, part of my music lexicon for a long time, having grown up an 80s, 90s kid. Yeah. Can't avoid him. And uh, I saw him early in his career, I believe, maybe even his first role. I could have researched this, but I totally didn't. But I think it might have been his first role in what happened to be my favorite movie of all time, Rumblefish. Right? And he just, I, I thought he was a very intriguing character then. Then after that, uh, uh, my sister, older sister, was part of those uh, girls who fell in love with the Nick Cage from Wild at Heart. You know, I kind of knew him in the periphery there. But then, of course, when he became an action star during that time period, when uh, that was the big thing. For boys my age, skateboarding and action movies and muscles and right. <laughs> shooting and one-liners. Yeah. You know, in between watching Stone Cold and you know, and Chuck Norris save the United States. Sure. It was one, there was some Nick Cage in there. And I, 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 I guess I was a little bit after that period. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I enjoy the man. I, I, I do. But I'm not going to put myself in the category of one of his fanatical fans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the hook for our conversation here is we're talking about, of course, the new the new movie where he he plays himself, the unbearable weight of massive talent. So Ray, what was your first like thought or reaction when you heard there was going to be a movie where fifty eight year old Nick Cage now now thirty years past your sister's crush and at least twenty past your his action movie days? What what did you think when you heard there was going to be a movie where he played himself? Well, I thought it was a really cool concept, and I really liked the idea that it was going to be a theatrical release because this really seemed like the kind of thing you would see go straight to streaming. Sure. And it's really unique because I I don't think you could do a movie like this with I, – I, I tried to rack my brain and think of who else you could actually do it with, and I couldn't really think of anybody because he's so singular. Right. And that kind of uniqueness, I was just really curious to see how they were going to pull this off and uh, you know if they were going to pull it off. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions for you down the line is like, is there anyone else you'd like to see them take a similar approach with? But I don't know, you're right. Uh, the more you think about it, like, my first answer is going to be Tom Cruise, but that's a lot. He's got a lot of baggage, a lot of baggage that Nick Cage doesn't have um, of people being like uncomfortable being like, this isn't you, you're you're a Scientology emperor or whatever. <laughs> Whereas like, what's the craziest thing we know about Nick Cage that he has, that he has reptiles and tax problems? Um it's all well, I think the craziest thing is that he's such an Elvis fan. He married his daughter, but uh, <laughs> he, okay, that's true. He's like he's such an iconic individual outside of the roles that he plays. The only person I was able to think of that might kind of be able to step into that kind of iconic uh, role would be like a Jeff Goldblum, because yeah. you look at him outside of his role. I, I try to imagine being an, uh, a director and you have a Nick Cage or Jeff Goldblum on your set, are you really going to tell them what to do? <laughs> I mean, you get them because of who they are and, and how they, you know, you can't direct that. These guys are so in themselves and, and, and 
they have their own essence and they bring it to every performance that they do and makes them so singular and special. Yeah, that that's a good point. It had me wondering kind of if Tom Gormacan, who who wrote and directed this movie, who I think had, had only directed one other movie before and he appears to be, you know, in his late thirties or something, like this guy this guy's gonna tell gonna tell Nick Cage how it is. It, I, you get you get the feeling that, that Nick uh probably had pretty free reign in this film. Yeah, his fingerprints are all over this. And I don't know if you've seen too many of the interviews uh, of the players of this talking about the movie, but yeah. I've noticed a lot of Nick Cage talking about his input in the movie, and yeah. it's pretty excessive. <laughs> sure. Um, do you think that is uh, for better or worse or a bit of both? Do you want to talk about, speculate about some areas where his fingerprints helped or hurt? Well, I think for the singularity of this kind of movie, it works, but for a movie, if you separate the uh, the joke of it yeah. being Nick Cage and the meta-ness of it all, it, it's it's kind of a mess. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's a mixture of somebody trying to tell a story and Nick Cage trying to do a lot of different things. He's trying to show off. He's trying to answer his critics in some parts. He's trying to you know, and and then there you know you have a a, a family plot thrown in there just to give your, your you know nicholas a, an arc but yeah that's not really flushed out i mean you have one great scene with uh lily sheen who i want to give props to because that young actor really took her shot in this movie i don't know if she just didn't know what movie she was in or if she just thought <laughs> you know i'm really gonna go for it here because she was way better than she needed to be for this movie but uh, yeah, there was that one scene at the dinner table between the two of them that really gave the movie art. It's unfortunate it was an hour in, but right. Uh, you talking about the scene where she says, "You're always trying," and that's the sad part. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a little, it was a little bit powerful. I mean, well, it was actually kind of powerful that whole uh, exchange between both her and Nicholas, and uh, it was a real tonal shift. Of course, this movie takes a lot of tonal shifts, and it's oh, not yeah. well crafted how they did that. You know, I, I love my tonal shifts, but you know, <laughs> it, it, it's like music. You want it to, to kind of flow a little bit and, and, and you want to be able to, to feel it. And these just happen. I mean, the movie starts by a kidnapping where a young girl gets punched in the face. Right. <laughs> Jump cut to Nicolas Cage caging out in a car. Like, whoa. <laughs> okay. Yeah. A little bit of whiplash. Um, maybe before we go further, we should give people the basic synopsis. So, uh, Nick Cage is is as you just gave the first opening moments, but he's he's cruising around Hollywood. He's taken a meeting with uh, David Gordon Green, um, also playing himself, the guy who's uh, remade the the Halloween films of late uh, and Stronger is another movie he directed. Um, and Nick really wants this part in a movie he's directing, and he kind of takes it too far as Nick Cage is wont to do, and gives a rather upsetting public line reading in like the uh the car park of wherever they're having lunch doesn't get it you know he's down and out people say he's working too much which is kind of like a real life critique of Nicolas Cage I guess if you care about that um and he's having financial problems uh and this this mysterious billionaire named Javi Gutierrez um is offering a million dollars for Nick to come to his birthday party off of what I think is like a fictional Spanish island. Ray, do you know, did we go to a real place in this movie or were we pretending it was a real place? I really didn't get much of a sense of where we were. I think I might've heard a reference to, uh, as far as where we were, I don't know. Was this a Colombian cartel? I, d I really don't know. There was mention of Italians at some point. The Colombian cartel, but uh, I think that's who they were representing. So I don't know if this was a place uh, relegated somewhere near Colombia, but then I think maybe that would have given the agent more of a tip off, maybe not to send his actor out there. But I, yeah, I don't know where they. <laughs> I know that it was shot in Croatia, and that was definitely not where it was set. But they mentioned like a Catalonian election. That's the girl we see kidnapped in the opening scene. Is she's the daughter of someone who's running for office in the Spanish state of Catalonia, but later they talk about a mobster from Naples, which is in Italy. We're all over the damn place here. You did say Catalonia. Maybe that was the Colombia I was thinking of. Okay, yeah, that's like a part of Spain, I think. Anyway, it's not important where it is, but uh, Nick's like, 
Nick's like, okay, I'll do it. I really need the million dollars. Um, goes and hangs out with this guy who it turns out is just a, a Nick Cage super fan, has all manner of ephemera and artifacts from his career. Um, they they take some drugs together. Javi, played by Pedro Pascal, I should say, is like trying to get him to act in a movie that he's writing. And then you, it starts to kind of sneak in that there's like an, a real action element to this action comedy that Javi may or may not be uh, a drug lord and the CIA is is looking into this um, represented by everyone's favorite CIA agents Tiffany Haddish and Ike Barinholtz the most the most believable CIA operatives imaginable um, but uh, yeah and then so it's kind of a like is he or isn't he with Javi as Nick is um, I guess trying to th- think about what it would mean to revitalize his whatever i don't know what nick cage fictional nick cage's kind of motivation is once he gets into all this rather than to kind of survive and maybe make a friend um what did you make of the relationship between nick and javi played by pedro pascal ray maybe we start there with the buddy element they were having a lot of fun i could tell and that came across I, I've heard critique that people were really uh, excited about the chemistry. And I, I, I guess, I mean, I, I didn't really feel there was anything that stood out as far as the chemistry we went. I, I, I just felt like this was two actors having a good time on screen. Yeah. Uh, Nick taking it obviously more seriously because it's all about him. Yeah. And, uh, Pedro, like, have you ever seen his interviews? This is closer to who I have known him to be as a person. So I think he's having fun being able to let that side of himself out. Totally. He's kind of a lovable, lovable kooky type. Right. Yeah. He's a fun guy. So, I mean, as far as bromances go, like, I think they really showed how to do that in most recently with like nice guys. Totally. Uh, That was probably one of the best I've seen uh, where they really took that Butch Cassidy, Sundance Kid kind of uh, relationship and mm-hmm. really made it work. This was something different. It was just kind of fun, but uh, it, it, it wasn't as groundbreaking as I think uh, some people that uh, critique this film might have thought it was. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think they're both okay in their own ways. I think that um, one of the things... I thought there was a moment early on where I'm like, is Pedro going to try to be stranger than Nick Cage? Is he going to try and out Cage Cage? Um, which is something that I think actors are tempted to do sometimes. Like Travolta in Face Off or Sam Rockwell in Matchstick Men. They're like, oh, this guy is so famous for going so big. Well, I can go bigger. Pedro doesn't really do that. He, I think he stays like very precise and tries to find like little moments of comedy. Like There's this great moment where he goes and flops himself down by the pool next to Nick for the first time and he kind of... He reaches for a bottle and he's trying to play it cool, but it's clearly not a twist off. So he just puts it back in the ice bucket, um, which is something I liked. Um, And yeah, there's like a scene where Nick is like, oh, is this guy a dangerous drug lord or not? And it's like a slow motion toast of Javi at his 40th birthday. Um, And Pedro conveys a lot of different things in the three seconds through which he raises his glass. Like, I think he's a, a, like a kind of precise performer and he, he was willing to, you know playing the super fan he's more than willing to let nick take sort of the alpha role in their dynamic i think is that fair that's very fair and i think it was something that might have hurt the film because mm. i feel like everybody took a back seat to nick cage i mean you <laughs> I mean, talk about the cia cia agents i can't think of a funny thing that two very funny actors did in that film i know i didn't even stand up in the movie <laughs> i mean is he so he starts out surveying Nick's arrival yeah in a car and then he's sitting in a van and then he's <laughs> sitting in a room watching Nick Cage do his thing and then he's slumped over in a chair I think I think you got all four of his scenes yeah there he is <laughs> like, and yeah I mean Tiffany Haddish has much more to do and I think she brings a like a funny energy as usual that feels sort of improvisational but like yeah there's just something suspicious about the way that 
like it moves from scene to scene of like and now they're talking on the phone again and she's still in that room and she's got to call him again oh there's some news she got to call him again it's just like tiffany haddish is the the per like the seventh build person in this movie who just calls nick cage on the phone that's her role in this come on do you think that in movie nick is weirder or less weird than real life nick well, there are a lot of different real-life Nicks. Uh, mm. Having gone down a rabbit hole of his interviews to prepare myself for my review and also this program, I have just, you know, you have the early Nick, which he definitely mined to do Little Nicky, which was a very interesting character. And I'm not sure if I could have used more or less of him. I'm kind of still kind of debating that one. Fair enough. Well, tell the people who Little Nicky is, would you? Well, Little Nicky is a kind of a wild at heart version of a younger Nick Cage that kind of plays a, uh, a I guess, his imaginary alter ego. Mm -hmm. Talks to him in real, very similar to Elvis in uh, uh, True Romance. Totally. And, uh, you know, so I, when I think about it, that made this a lot more uh easy to digest seeing him talk to this fantasy character. Not to mention, like, I think just not that long ago, I watched a show where Tommy Lee was talking to his penis. So this kind of thing isn't completely odd anymore. Right. It's kind of cool how they did it. And I don't know if they, they used it as effectively as they could have, but it was a cool idea. And I, I heard Nick even mention that it was one of the selling points for him that he really loved it and then had his whole concept for what he wanted that little Nikki to be, which is one of those things that goes back to you talking about what the script was and what it ended up being is I think Nick's input also changed little Nikki. And I think all these things kind of may have uh, convoluted a little bit of what the original story, like I would like to see a Snyder cut version of his original idea. Uh -huh. <laughs> that might've been kind of interesting, but yeah. So, you know, little Nikki was pretty funny, but I'm not sure if he was utilized all that well what do you think his what do you think his problem is ray like in, in this movie the, the character of nick cage in act one like what what did you gauge his his like faults to be what what should the rest of the movie be exploring well it seems like what nicholas wanted to do was address the talk about how he's such a prolific actor putting out a lot of material right. that gets panned because it's not, you know, his Oscar winning material. It's just stuff that he wants to do. And he took a moment to address that. He did it in the little therapy session part yep. and little things like that, where I think he utilized whatever the motivation for, uh, or the catalyst for the story was, or his um, being down and out. I think he used whatever that was to, be his to utilize his voice to answer a lot of critics as far as that goes where he talks about being a working actor and and do i need to apologize for being prolific and feeding my family and and he goes on and on but of course that gets kind of counteracted later on in the fact that his agent tells him like you're going broke because you're, you're spending habits and and your divorce and whatnot so it's like is he spending too much and that's why he's in in trouble or is it because hollywood isn't uh treating him the way that they should and giving him the roles that he deserves. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the characters think. Like, they don't spend a lot of time really diving into that. Like Nick isn't talking about that as much as uh, I probably would have liked. He's, he's going inward a lot and, and critiquing a lot of things. Yeah. I, it seemed like maybe the character is like a little over analytical or like maybe a little too, he's got some blinders on because of, how just obsessed with his own things he is. If there's one bit of like absolute Nick Cage verisimilitude in this, it's that he rambles about German expressionism um, when he's talking about Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Like, like Nick Nick Cage will absolutely talk your ear off about German expressionism. He loves it. So that part felt like quite quite real. Um, and then maybe like there's a couple jokes about just sort of the the 
ego fantasies of an actor who thinks he can drunkenly sit down at his daughter's 16th birthday and make up a song on the piano and whatever he comes up with in the moment will will be good enough um and there's a couple funny lines too about like how he thinks he's getting pretty good at quote like spy craft because of his acting ability like those are some funny things but yeah i just didn't i didn't fully understand like what this guy's to the extent that Nick Cage actually has a character flaw to be solved and certainly something you would think the the script would help would let Javi have a hand in helping him reckon with as they became closer as friends that doesn't really happen um to the extent that sometimes I didn't really even know why Nick Cage cared about Javi he just seemed kind of kind of scared maybe vaguely flattered what do you think keeps them together down the stretch of this movie well, it's basically their shared love of movies, which I can understand. That's how you and I met. Fair enough. Yep. Their shared love of Nick Cage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right? And it's fun to have somebody who, you know, is effusive with their praise of you around you all the time. So it's very much an ego thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, you're right. Like, as far as the, the, the catalyst for the film, it doesn't seem like they set it up to be his arc that it, there's some redemption for his career. Uh-huh. They kind of shoehorned the family thing in there to be his, his arc, which was, I, mean, I almost forgot he had a family until they, you know, until like the third act. But I think the funny thing about like, whether this is how close this is to our universe as Nick Cage or whether it split off some years ago is like, he's kind of always evolving and yet always doing the same thing. And there's a part of me that, and I, I don't mean like in from movie to movie. I, I don't think he really has a shtick, which I think is one of the big problems of this movie is it tries to pretend that like, you know, Nick Cage, he's the guy who bows and says fuck a lot. I'm like, that's not what I like about Nick Cage. <laughs> that's not that's not why I think he's an interesting artist. Um, there's like this temptation to be like, well, everything will be different after Nick kind of puts this cherry on top of his career where he plays himself and in a weird way the most authentic thing about this movie is not that he plays himself in it the the thing that feels like a normal nick cage movie is that it feels like it was done in 72 hours (laughs) he's the center of the he's the center of attention like he he doesn't you know I, i wouldn't say he's bad to work with but you know like you said not there's not a ton of discernible chemistry he like doesn't play that well with others that's never been his his big thing i mean there's a few exceptions to that he and travolta are great in face off he and laura dern are great in wild at heart but like he's not one of those guys who like everybody come collaborate with me it's it's as you've said it's his show he's taking the questions at the panel um but he if you i looked ahead at what he's doing for the rest of the year and he's doing two straight to video westerns that i don't know anyone else involved with them at all they are called the old way and butcher's crossing and it's like it's like so it's here it is it's like this big it's the cage assance i'm sure his publicist is like screaming to the heavens it's like no it's not he's just he's kind of doing his thing and this one time he played himself in a movie where he did his thing and i guess from an industry level not as an artist but as an industry level he's he's just gonna keep he's gonna keep on trucking i think well he's got he's got that weird uh juxtaposition of being iconic and a working actor so he's yeah, yeah. a working actor you just got to keep you know the roles coming and they're not all going to be gold right but you know he's freaking nick cage so because he's iconic ray i think we should i think we should wrap up here um what do you do you know the be real rating system do you can i refresh you on this on Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. 
bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. So for me, I'd probably give this a bad good. I think that the the story and the execution is uh, like weirdly cheap and a bit of a mess. I do think that as with 90% of Nick Cage movies, even the bad ones, I would watch this again for him. So I'd go bad good. Well, first off, I'm going to go bad for the first one. And I might just have to go, and I hate to do this, bad, oh. bad. Well, you've already seen it twice, so you might be done with this movie. Well, yeah, and that's the thing, is upon rewatch, I realize I don't like rewatching it, and I'll never rewatch it again. It's an experience, and I, I'm glad I had the experience. Yeah. I had fun with it that one time. And but to me, it's rather disposable. Um, it it didn't do much for me. But I would say, if you're a Nick Cage fan, like a bobblehead doll, it's got to be part of your uh, collection. Right. Not, uh, maybe go see The Northman or something. Have you seen The Northman? I have not yet. I haven't either, but I keep hearing great things about it. Uh, yeah, right at my alley, and I haven't seen a good movie in my alley in a long time what's your what's your alley bloody revenge that kind of the lore the action the, oh, cool. the world building kind of stuff bigger than life but you know with little historical uh element in it all that sure. stuff is a lot and i think this one has a lot of mysticism in it as well i read so i'm kind of curious to see how that gets worked out and then york's in it so whatever yeah <laughs> that's something any any self-respecting dj such as yourself should be interested in that um yeah i guess the last thing i would say that uh, kind of jogged loose there is that there was a chance to go inside the inside the brain of the bobblehead here like a movie that this got compared to a lot in the run-up was being john malkovich but the thing about that movie is that you get to turn what a great artist and charlie kaufman and, and and spike jones in tow like thought about what are the pigeonholes and refractions and weird lessons and genuine eccentricities of a of an actor who you see constantly but is hard to know like a john malkovich and in if 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 massive talent really wanted to chase the cult of cage I think it could have been a lot more kaleidoscopic, psychedelic. It's weird that they take it's they take acid in the movie and there's not one moment of psychedelic filmmaking at all. <laughs> um, like it, they could have gone more for the nerds. They could have they could have brought in the Willy's Wonderland uh, animals if if they wanted. Um, and I think, I think the person that wrote this ever did acid. <laughs> no, it doesn't seem like it. No, um, uh, that's not how that works. It's, it's so I hear. But if you want to go cult, go all the way cult. Don't be like, this is for the Nicolas Cage super fans, but mostly the ones who've seen Con Air. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. Go for it or don't. Come on now. Um, Isn't Dylan Malkovich a little bit of a... Got an element of outside looking in? 100%, yeah. Yeah, so that that's an element that I think that really works with that one a little bit more that, that this one didn't even do because it is so much of Nick's voice yeah. to the audience. This is in inside pretending to be outside is this movie there it is yeah and, and it basically ends as an homage you know yeah homage to his career than a movie like being john malkovich is still a movie totally. it's crazy but it's a movie <laughs> <laughs> very true very true uh ray any final thoughts sir uh let's see you said what you need to say I pretty much think I dumped my brain out on this one. You did beautifully. Thanks for thanks for chatting chatting with us. Um, so people, you got your uh, radio show, uh, Rude Boy Radio, Sundays at or Saturdays at noon. Is that right? Saturdays at noon. We've got a little mix of uh, reggae, hip hop, and the influences in between, and a whole lot of fun. And just kind of, you know, it's it's an hour of good beats and good vibes with a little bit of a political messaging in there. Don't worry about all that. And uh, where can people listen? That's going to be on PRP.FM. Uh, if you're here in the Portland area, you can catch it on 99.1 FM. Cool. Terrestrial radio. Love it. Um, <laughs> well, sir, we should do it again. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Yes, sir. We'll talk to you later. Oh, yeah. You put your right foot in. You take your right foot out. You do the hokey pokey and you fucking work it all out.
to paraphrase Chef Rob in the movie Pig, we don't get a lot of things to really care about in this life. Not really. But our guest today really cares about Nicolas Cage. You can find his bylines at Mike, Paste, Inverse, and many more fine publications. We're jazzed. He is back on the show for a third time. Andy Crump, welcome. Hi, guys. How are you all doing? Hi, Chance. I speak for the audience. They are fine. I am fine. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for being with us. Um, so we... This is a good occasion to to reconvene. In, in 2017, you came on this program um, and posited after the movie Mom and Dad, which was a movie that you and I both liked. I believe my co-host Noah quite liked. Um, culminates in Nick Cage shrieking the hokey pokey and trying to kill his kids. After seeing this movie, you posited, <laughs> we might be in a new chapter of Cage. We might be turning away from the Bangkok dangerous, drive angries, Andy Samberg, um, you know, parody land of it all um i think five years later you were right um that we yes, were at the beginning of a new chapter there you go take that victory lap um, oh, yeah that's me I'm, I'm right about things every once in a while <laughs> what changed what changed why were you right um well it's just i have this incredible power to predict and also influence the future with my words no i don't i i mean i don't i don't really know why i was right i think the first thing to realize about cage um and i think this is important to point out because the unbearable weight of massive talent is coming out and i should just give full disclosure to everybody i haven't seen it it's not screening remotely i'm still not going back to theaters there's a whole list of reasons why um so just i i don't want to create any pretense haven't seen it but um i would say that that movie and also the last and especially i would say pig and uh, frankly you could go through his entire 2021 as 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 evidence of this there like nick cage has always been a really good actor Mm-hmm. Like remember, just I think I think it's it's important to to remember that a lot of the junk that he's taken and he has done a lot of junk. These are they're you know they're they're paycheck gigs. Much as much as you can look at those movies and, and question how much of a paycheck he's getting for some of them. Sure. Um, you know, I I would say just based on you know interviews he's done recently, um, as the cage of has really picked up. I mean, it just sounds like that's what those those were the kinds of movies he was able to do. And I'm not I'm not about to suggest that Mom and Dad is the movie that people saw and then said, "Oh wow, Nick Cage, he can really act." Like let's 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 start doing you know good movies with him again. Um, I would actually say that the the movie that really like reminded everybody that Cage can act was Mandy. It's the next year. I mean, and it arguably features him going as big as he has he's ever gone. But he, but he's found a movie to match the the magnitude of that performance. A movie from the you know mystical bowels of your worst nightmare, as dreamed up by Panos Cosmatos. Um, so, what what do you think? What what works so well about that movie? Why? I mean, that's kind of like the make good on the claim that you were making the prior year. I mean, there, there, there's, I would say that there are a confluence of things in Mandy that, that make it work so well. I mean, Cosmatos is, is obviously, I would say the, you know, upfront, the thing that needs to be discussed just because that, that is, there's so much vision and creativity and other weird nightmarish things that go into that movie. Um, and it hinges on this halfway, you know, pivot in 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 tone and in what happens and and plot. You know, the first half is very dreamy, hazy. Uh, I hate the phrase slow burn, so I use that very very you know begrudgingly. Mm. Um, it's not really like it's not really like full blown horrorish. It's 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 kind of like a vibe movie, and then. Yeah it steps into kind of like pseudo cult, uh, you know, cult not like cult is in cult classic cult is in like cultists, crazy lunatic cultist horror movie, and then becomes some, you know, weird ass take on Hellraiser and then becomes a revenge movie. Mm-hmm. I think, the, I think the reason 
you know, I, I don't know if you could really make that movie with another actor. Again, a thing that I don't normally like to say, but I can't really see somebody out there who could, you know, fulfill the role that um, Cage needs to fulfill. And he's kind of uniquely positioned as somebody who, uh, you know, has this very specific presentational acting style. Uh, he's really uniquely suited to match that tone as that as the tone shifts. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of like easygoing and laconic to, you know, very, uh, you know, desperate and, you know, broken and anxious. The, this, the, there's the scene where he's running around in his underpants in a, in a, in a you know, a, a single solitary square room with his, you know, his tiger t-shirt on drinking and just yeah. screaming into the camera. Um, it's, it is the kind of confrontational, again, the, the, the word I, keep, I will keep going back to is presentational style that that addresses the audience without breaking you know the the illusion and and you know ruining the movie I think a lot of people would call that overacting. I think here it's there, there's some operatic quality to it, um, and it it just it 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 is it is in perfect lockstep with the atmosphere that Cosmatos creates. Um, I mean, it's an over the it is an it is an over the top uh, cosmic movie. I think you need the kind of energy that Cage brings. Uh, to make that work, you know, whether he's, you know, in love with, as anybody would be, Andrea Riseborough, whether he's, you know, you know, expressing this explosive grief at what happens to her character, and then whether he's making a, like a battle axe. Uh (laughs) He forges a battle axe. Oh, yeah. And he he kills, he he kills demons with it. Yeah. It's, it's just like, I, I don't, I don't know who could sell just the, the, the escalation uh, that this movie takes. Yeah, I, 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 I feel like there's a, you know, the Vince McMahon meme where it's, yes. it's like, yeah, yeah. So that's, <laughs> that's this movie. Uh, like, and, and then, at the, you know, the, the very end is him, you know, crushing Linus Roach's fucking skull in his hands. Oh, can uh-huh. I swear on this podcast? Sure you can. Yes. Okay. Um, so I, th- I think that movie is, is very good for cage in terms of allowing him to really have free reign and free expression. And, you know, to, he really gets to fully embody and, and wield the power that he has uh, as an actor. Let's talk about his audience. Cause that was part of your thesis last year when you wrote about his 2021 movies for Polygon, you, you seem to suggest that he was, just dialing in further and further to what um, his fans kind of love and expect. And yet I, I think when you said that you're, you're not implying that he is like doing a shtick. Like that's one of the great things about Nicolas Cage. And one of the things we're not talking about massive talent, but one of the things I think it sort of misapprehends about him is it sort of pretends he has a shtick, which he doesn't. I mean, yelling you could argue it's yelling, but yelling employed 10 million different ways in 10 million different movies is, is a different kind of thing. Um, so my question for you in terms of how you think about his relationship to his audience is how do you, how do you play to an expectant audience without just doing what's expected? What do you see him? What do you see him doing? Oof. That's a, that's a, a, a big towering question. It's, it's, I'm sorry. It's early for those. That well, it's earlier for you. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's mid morning for the guest to answer the question. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm imp- I'm impressed. You- I'm impressed you're able to rattle rattle it off at seven o'clock your time, my friend. Um, I mean, I th- I think it- so. It's interesting to me because you you can kind of like separate 2021 into two piles, and the, the you know the pile over here is uh, Willie's Wonderland and Prisoners of the Ghostland. And then the pile over here is is pig. Yeah. And so it's, you know, seems like a very sad pile in this <laughs> hand I'm gesturing with that nobody can see except right. you. Yeah. Um I, I think I think it's funny. I, I almost feel like in some regard, and this is 
completely just they're like i just want to make this clear this is not true what i'm about to say like there's no there's no concrete to this whatsoever it's just like a weird sense that i have or something that i guess i wish was real it kind of feels like he's fucking with everybody in 2021 okay because you have pigs sandwiched right between willie's wonderland and prisoners of the ghost land although i guess you could say that those both came first if you stop prisoners out of sundance which i did uh really good movie to fall asleep to okay <laughs> just i just, I haven't just seen that one just for just for the record, I woke up and I restarted from the beginning, so I have seen it from start to finish. But um, I th I think those two movies actually do look like the kind of movie that people would expect Cage to make in terms of being very genre centric, you know, genre centric in terms of being, um, you know, like basically big wide sandboxes for him to do prototypical Cage things, which he he does do, and I think he does deliver on what people kind of expect him expect from him mm -hmm. um uh people being kind of again divided into two buckets there are the people who just see nicholas cage as the freak out meme guy mm -hmm. or people who you know understand what cage is doing in his performances um you know like over here are like the people who share like they're not the bees gif on twitter all the time and over here is like you know ethan hawk yeah who, who you know a big proponent of cage uh I think, I think the I think the real like spoiler in all of that is Pig. That movie was a shocker. If you if you're the kind of person who thinks of of Cage as again not the bees, uh, Pig, you know, was a like a real you know curveball. Totally. Uh, you know, again, maybe the best reminder that Cage is a real actor because I think that movie. Uh, and not to discredit the performance, I think it's the best performance for me that I saw last year, one of them anyways, and one of the best films I saw last year. That performance plays much closer to what people traditionally think of when they think of acting uh, in terms of convention. But he's so good at it. He's so he's so grounded. He's so like, um, you know, warm mm -hmm. and gentle, but also just steely and prickly and salty and it all comes together in this very this very well realized you know holistic package was there a moment in pig for you where because i mean you, you start that movie and he's this sort of like gruff bearded hermit you, I, I went back and read your playlist review the setup is very like you want to see john wick with a pig that's obviously not where the movie goes um so at the beginning you could just be like he's doing the gruff aging movie star thing but was there is there a moment for you in that movie where you realize like, oh no, this is a, this is a character who's super internal, who's hiding all of these wounds in this giant coat as he kind of traipses around Portland, where you kind of realize that like this support performance was legitimately going to really surprise you and be different? Frosted side of my brain goes right to the restaurant, like the snooty upscale restaurant scene yeah. where again, the line, we don't get a lot of things to really care about comes up. Um, if I take a pause to really think about it, I actually think that scene works not just because of Cage, but because of his um, his co-stars. Like, I don't think that that scene is just about Cage, so I think that would be kind of, like, unfair. Yeah, Alex Wolf just watching him throughout the movie makes a, makes a big difference. I don't remember who plays Chef Derek. I don't know if you're looking that up right now. I, I, I know. Um, Dave, so David Nell, actually, I wrote a whole piece about David Nell um, oh really? Yeah, for paste and about what you know the you know how he makes that scene work. Uh, so I, I, that's a, I think I think that's that's obviously like the pivotal scene in the movie. It's the scene that I come back to over and over again. I could probably you know recite that whole monologue that Cage does. They're not real. You get that right? None of it is real. The critics aren't real. The customers aren't real because this isn't real. You aren't real. <laughs> okay. Derek, why do you care about these people? They don't care about you. None of them. They don't even know you because you haven't shown them. Every day you'll wake up and there'll be less of you. You live your life for them, and they don't even see you. You don't even see yourself. We don't get a lot of things to really care about. 
I think for actually the scene where you really realize that Cage is, is on another, like, like kind of going into another, going in another direction. He's doing something, um, you know, much more poignant with this performance is, is where he's taking Alex Wolf's character to the, to the hotel Portland and is you know, Alex Wolf is like, Oh, you know, go fuck your pig or whatever. And, you know, he stop. He cage just stops. Uh, Chef Rob stops and just goes, "Well, you know, here's the history of the Hotel Portland. It's buried underground, and I, I don't fuck my pig." <laughs> like you realize that this, like that's suddenly the like the moment where you don't like you. I think I think there's like the everything leading up to that. You see him as kind of this grizzled uh, hermit um, who you know forges truffles with his pig, and there's hints that he's somebody else, kind of sprinkled like so much seasoning throughout. But that's the moment where you realize that, like, so what I am going to do is look up Alex Wolf's character's name. Or, you know, it's correct. I don't care. Alex Wolf. He's just yeah. Alex Wolf. Right. I think that's the moment where he realizes this isn't just some isolated, you know, weirdo loner. Like, he's just summited like a like a giant from from over the hillside mm-hmm. to, to 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 come home. I was going to throw a theory at you, Andy. And maybe this is just a, a cheap way of putting Mandy and Pig together as sort of the two big touchstones of the last five years of Cage. But I, do you think he is getting better or movies are letting him find a place where like his facility with like pain and suffering as he ages are getting really good? I feel like he's expre- he's probably expressing real things from himself in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like the you know we don't get a, a lot of things to really care about line probably applies. I mean, I th- I'm, I could very easily see him you know reading that in the script and saying, "Wow, I I I I believe this. I feel this." Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think you need you. I I feel like in some ways, maybe not failure might be too harsh harsher word, but neglect being overlooked, those things might produce, um, you know, all the necessary emotions uh, and might open up the necessary pathways that, that led him to these roles and that led him to these performances. You know, he's in a great place right now. I don't want to keep you too much longer. There are two other movies that we had emailed about um, just in his last five years that you think kind of helped tell the tale a little bit. Um, One is, his his turn as spider-man noir in spider-man to the spider-verse um what do you i mean in addition to just him being part of a great movie what um why do you think that one is worth remarking upon i'm glad you know what it's been so long since we we've been doing the back and forth on an email on this so long i'd actually forgotten that we brought those up i i just think he's like you can you can sort of like picture i think the thing about like a good voice performance for me i like to be able to picture what the actor is doing on the other side of the mic. And maybe this is, you know, like heresy for some people. I don't, I don't know. Um, I know it's heresy for some people that like non-voice actors get brought in for voice roles all the time, which, okay, fine. I don't really want Chris Pratt voicing characters in animated movies either because he's whatever. Um, I think Nick Cage is just having a really good time voicing that character. Like he's just putting so much sauce on that, on that, on that, on that performance, on that, you know, that figure, like he's really connecting with like the, the hard boiled noir elements of that, of that, you know, the, the, of spider noir and just going real smoky with the voice. Oh, it's, it's a, it's a hoot. It's a blast. You can just feel like the, you can feel that like you can feel the joy off, uh, like coming off of it, like every word. Can you close off your feelings so you don't get crippled by the moral ambiguity of your violent actions? I imagine he's probably a fan of the old bogey movies and Cagney movies, because that's all part of that dimension. At least that's how I like to portray the character. I like to drink egg creams and I like to fight Nazis a lot. What's what's the line? Are you, you're going to fight or you're just bumping gums, you, you hard-boiled turtle slapper while he's beating <laughs> right. the piss out of tomb, what a Tombstone or whatever his name is. I, I'm getting the names wrong because I can't remember comic book character names if they're not you know kingpin or doc ock or whatever but right. like it's just he I, he just is he just links up to this language to this this period and brings it all the way forward to now into this this uh category of of this entire yeah this entire category of of filmmaking and storytelling and branding and 
just has a ha, like it just makes it into he's not in the in the movie so much but he just makes it into such he makes him into such like a a meaningful lasting character it's really fun to see him fit in because that's almost something he, he almost never does that um often because like movies don't ask him to or you know he he doesn't always like I'm not saying him as a professional actor, he doesn't play well with others, but sometimes you watch him in a movie, it's like, I don't get the sense that like the strength of this movie is you played well with others. So he's he- like, I feel like he's often, you know, in, in, in the movies that, that are not like the, the cage movies that we've been kind of, you know, casually alluding to without naming names right. for the most part. Uh, I feel like he's in a different movie than everybody else yeah. here. He's definitely in spider verse. Yeah with his with his co-stars with his you know his fellow voice actors um ratatatin with john mulaney yeah exactly and he's just having like oh my god he he's a great veteran anchor for uh predominantly younger uh voice cast um and just brings he brings like a like a like uh like a veterancy and a mythos with him that i just think is it's a lot of fun to, to listen to. Now, I think the other movie where you were going to bring up was Love Antosha. Yeah, even deeper cut. I know you're passionate about it. Tell us why you like it. I know this is this is sort of a dumb thing to say about a movie like Love Antosha because like how can you expect a movie like that to really you know be more substantive and and you know, uh, you know investigative about this young actor who died and everybody in the movie is mourning him and it's you know it's really a, a documentary tribute to his life and what could have been and what was. Um, I think my, my feeling about that movie was like, oh, it's, it's really nice and sweet. And I'm really like, I am legit aggrieved that Anton Yelchin uh, passed so, so, so far before his time. But I think that movie for me was like a warm bath. I think if I'm revisiting it in my head now, and let me say, warm baths aren't bad. Warm baths are great. I draw warm bubble baths for my, for my, you know, my toddler every, you know, like all the time. And they're, they're the best. Mm-hmm. I don't get in the bath, but she does dump water all over me because that's sure. <laughs> you try you having kids and, and it's gonna happen. You just sure. gotta you gotta lean in. It's a hoop. Fair enough. Um so warm baths are good. Cage's role in this in this Anton Yelkin documentary should say is he he's the narrator and he's he's re, he's reading um without much fanfare. I don't believe he's ever named until the credits, right? Um he's reading Anton Yelkin's personal diaries. I th- you know, there's just there's like a calm to his his narration and i guess you know you could argue that this isn't really a performance i would call bs on that you know i think of like i am not your negro and sam jackson you know narrating for that movie that is definitely a performance and if you know i would say this is a performance too different performance but there's something very gentle soothing and and you know uh just again i go back to that that word warmth that you know i talk about when i talk about pig uh like he's trying to like there's there's some there's something about it where he's yeah like trying to uh process grief and and you know kind of really articulate the sense of loss that that we you know the industry is feeling um from having lost you know anton um we'll end on possibly the toughest question of them all and you you don't have to you don't have to come up with anything great to it but uh so this year he's he's playing in two more what look like uh straight to vod westerns uh butcher's crossing in the old way our our guy you know he doesn't sometimes he's just doing the same thing hopefully those movies are great i can't wait to see him but um uh and then he's playing count dracula in the renfield movie with nicholas holt which seems like god has he wanted to play count dracula his whole career that's all he wants to do man <laughs> put, it, put it in my eyeballs man. just play vampires so i'm so on board with it but uh as our resident uh cage tradamus andy is there anything else you're dying is there anything you're dying to see him do is there anything you want to see him do next i would love to see him do like another like another dirtbag movie and i, I think he, he has done other dirtbag movies in between now and then but something in the vein of uh bad lieutenant would be a delight i'd oh, love to see him you know do like do more straight up comedies which i understand uh you know massive talent to be but i you know i just i just want him to take this momentum that he's that he's built and i want him to keep you know running with it and i want him to find the roles that suit him and make him happy and that fulfill him as an actor and therefore would fulfill his audience 
Like we want to see these movies. We want to see more Mandy's. We want to see more pigs. I like my, my mixed feelings on Ghostland and, you know, Willie's Wonderland aside, I want to see him. I want to see another movie like Willie's Wonderland that actually works where he expresses so much without saying a damn word, the entire movie. Like I just, yeah, just keep, keep doing what he's been doing in the last five years. And I will be, I'll be happy. Well, we know, I think if there's one thing we know is that he's going to keep trying um, and that there will be, there will be hits and misses and the misses will make the hits even sweeter. That's how it seems to go thus far. Exactly. So, um, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap there, Andy. Thanks a lot for, for your time and insights and uh, we'll hopefully catch you in the next chapter of the great Nick Cage book. I'll see you here in, in you know, another five years or so. To read me like a hoodoo.